All right, John chapter 11, picking up in verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hast heard me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loosen him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we, for this man doeth many miracles? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Then, excuse me, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves, as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, um, as we go into this section, we've already covered many of the verses from uh, verse 38 down to verse uh, 44 and 45. But uh, just as a reminder here, let us um, appreciate that this is one of the most notable miracles that was ever done in the Scriptures, that not only would Jesus raise somebody from the dead, um, but that the individual had been dead for four days. So that was quite an unusual thing. It was a very public ministry. We talked about how that when... Uh, Mary was weeping when uh, people thought she was going to go to the grave. She went to Christ, so people were led to Christ. So this had taken place over a period of days um, with the idea that Christ would be glorified in it. Uh, It was his intent that not only would Lazarus die from the illness, but that he would be dead indeed for days. So more people would know about it, more people would come to the grave, more people would appreciate that Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and the life, which is what he said. He had talked about previously in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 about he uh, 
God has given power over the grave and how he would speak and, and uh, those that are dead would come forth. Um, and he was, in fact, improving all, of those, improving all of those sayings. And so we know that Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. It was close enough for people to walk in a short period of time. So many people were gathered at the grave of Lazarus. Um, everybody was going to hear about this miracle. Once it had taken place, those people were going to go back to Jerusalem, go back to the cities, and everybody was going to be talking about this. There were indeed many witnesses there. And we had talked about that, how when, uh, when Jesus shouted with a loud voice in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth, he wasn't doing that for Lazarus' benefit, but he was doing it for the benefit of everybody that was around. So they would associate what took place when Lazarus came forth from the grave with Christ himself. So everything was set up here for the glory of God, for the benefit of his people, that we would rest in him, that we would trust in him. Now what is interesting that we see in here, and let's say in verse 39, is Jesus says to the people that are there, take ye away the stone. And then over in verse 44, he says to them, because Lazarus is bound about with grave clothes and a napkin over his face, Jesus says, loose him and let him go. We see in these grand miracles that the Lord does that he uses men in his work. And that's a very interesting thing. Uh, we saw that at the wedding of Canaan, where, Cana, where he had told people to fill up the water pots with water and then bear it to the governor of the feast, which they did. We saw that in John chapter 6, where the Lord had his disciples uh, have the people sit down. Not like Christ couldn't do that. You recall that when he was arrested in the garden, not only did they sit down, but they fell down when he, dis, um, when he identified himself as the I Am. So he didn't need his disciples to do that, but he had them do that. Set everybody down in order, and then when he broke the bread and gave thanks and uh, broke the fishes, he had them to distribute it. He doesn't need them to do that. Recall when he brought the uh, manna in the wilderness? It rained from heaven, and then he brought quail. Um, so he doesn't need men to do those kinds of things. In verse 39 here, he says, Take ye away the stone. Um, I think we can appreciate his attention to detail. Imagine if Lazarus had been brought to life and the stone was closed. I think he'd be a little bit concerned about what had happened to him and he wouldn't have been able to heal Christ, certainly, which he couldn't anyway. But nevertheless, you can appreciate that the Lord is concerned about Lazarus's heart and everybody around there as well. And in verse 44, again, loosen him and let him go. Now, as I'd mentioned, there's no need for God to do that. In Genesis, we know that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He created everything visible and invisible, things that are temporal and things that are going to be internal. He did all of that. John chapter 1, it opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Christ, He is God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He made absolutely everything. In Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 3, we know it says that through faith we understand, and it requires faith to understand this because the wisdom of the world is that things just spontaneously appeared. That part is true, but the source of the spontaneity was Christ. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Christ is the word of God. We just read that in John chapter 1. He spoke everything into existence. He certainly could have commanded the rock to roll out of the way. Mm -hmm. Think about what the Lord did in Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, when uh, the uh, Israelites were battling the five kings of the Amorites. They had cons 
come together and uh, developed an alliance whereby they were going to go after a city that had allied themselves with the Israelites. Well, sometimes there's just not enough time in the day to do everything you want to do. What's the solution? God stayed the sun and the moon. He held everything in place. I'll read verse 13 of Joshua chapter 10. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. So not only did he stay the rotation of the earth, he stayed the rotation of the moon about the earth. God can do that. By him all things consist, and he can freeze everything right where it is if that's what he wants to do. And Isaiah 38.8, we talk about this was a sign that was given to King Hezekiah that the Assyrians would not destroy the city and that he would recover from his illness, the Lord giving him 15 additional years. And he says, Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, he says, Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backwards. So the sun returned 10 degrees by which degrees it was gone down. In other words, not only did he freeze the rotation, but he reversed the rotation of the earth 10 degrees. Do you think he could roll a rock out of the way? Well, of course he could. So nevertheless, God uses men in his ministry. And I think we can appreciate why he might do this. We don't need to overthink it. But it brings God glory to set before the world his vessels of mercy as examples of his grace to those that believe not. So he sets believers in front of non-believers so that they can appreciate that God has done a work in their life and that God is uh, capable of uh, bringing that work to whomever he will. In Romans 9.23, it helps us appreciate that. It says he makes known the riches of his glory, makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And so he sets these people before the wise people of the world, so again, that they will appreciate God's work in their life. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God uses Christians to go out into the world and simply preach the world. We're not to go out like Some religious groups do that would bring a sword and extort a confession from somebody. There's no conversion in that individual. Obviously, nothing in their heart was changed. I cannot change the heart of anybody, and neither can can you. I don't care how cogent your argument is. You cannot convince a person to being a Christian. You simply preach the simplicity of the gospel, and then God puts it on their hearts. And he says that in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, that would be the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. James 1.18 says this very simply. James 1.18, of his own will begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Very simple. All we do is preach the gospel. We preach the truth. God applies it to the hearts of whomever he will, and then people are converted. And so God sends his people out. How shall they hear unless a preacher be sent? So he sends preachers out into the world. 
In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, he sets this uh, before us. He says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. There's a lot of folks studying science and just can't seem to figure out where the world came from. God tells you where it came from. They keep digging and digging and digging, and as far as I'm concerned, they're doing nothing but digging a grave. So it says here, Please God, by the foolishness of preaching... To save them that believe. <clears throat> For the Jews require a sign. How true is that here? The Jews require a sign. I would characterize Lazarus as a sign. Um, and the Lord said back in Luke 16 that though a man come back from the dead, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets whom I have sent to you, if you don't believe that, you're not going to believe though one came back from the dead. But Lazarus is a sign. The Jews require a sign. They request that he give them a sign. He gives them a sign. And it says here, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So they're hitting all their books and studying, and they're not finding Christ. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, when we get to verse 30, uh, 49 and 50 here in John chapter 11, um, Caiaphas himself is going to preach the gospel, but he doesn't understand what he's saying. Um, so we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we should appreciate, and the things that I've shared with us, that there is no greater miracle than God regenerating the heart of an individual. It is greater than speaking everything into existence. That did not require anything from God, but the regeneration of the heart required the death of God and punishment of God by God for the sins of his people. He died on the cross, and so you could say uh, that he has poured his life out uh, in the process of regeneration for an individual. Speaking everything into existence did not cost him anything. Now, again, strange as it may seem to us, God has ordained that those in whom he is united with participate in this process through the preaching of the gospel. Not only are they vessels of mercy and grace, but they are instrumentalities of his mercy and grace as they bring the gospel and work with one another. So in verse 44, when we see that he says, loose him and let him go, we can appreciate that he's bound with grave clothes and his face is covered with a napkin. He is encumbered with the trappings of this world. He's encumbered with the garments of death and he can't see clearly. So what do we do in fellowship? What do fellow Christians do? Well, we edify one another so that we might see and appreciate Christ more clearly and that we might better negotiate this present evil world, removing those things from our lives, helping us to remove those things from our lives, which would encumber us that we might better trust and rest in Christ. And that is where we see Lazarus in verse 2 of chapter 12, where he is sitting at the table, supping with his Lord and Savior. And so it shall be for all of those who believe in Christ. When we read in 1 John 1, chapter 1, um, about the um, way in which the disciples witnessed these things, we can appreciate the veracity of that statement. It says there, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. They heard this. They heard Jesus tell Lazarus to come forth, which we have seen with our eyes. They saw it, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. They truly witnessed the things. They saw it. They heard it. They touched it. They were there when he did it. We know that all inspiration is, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but of a truth, he used men that witnessed and saw these things. Not all of the, they didn't see everything, but the Holy Ghost put the truths on their heart. But nevertheless, big picture, they were there. They saw it. Now, 
In verse 45, I talked about this, about the grammatical um, tense of the word believe. And so in verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. And we appreciated that, if you look at the Greek there, that the belief was not continuous. It was a one-time belief. They appreciated what they saw. They believed that it happened, but it didn't result in regeneration. They were impressed with what I will call a dog and pony show. I don't mean to denigrate what he did, but that's how they viewed these things. There was no lasting movement within the heart that requires the Spirit of God. We compared the tense of the word believe there with the tense of the word believe in uh, verse 25 when the Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. How can somebody who's dead believe? Because it's a continuous belief that God has converted that heart. Verse 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believe thou this, and then Martha says, I believe it. And all of those beliefs there are in the Greek tense of it's belief that happened at some point in the past, and it's continuously happening. We don't have the benefit of that in the English language, but it is there in the Greek. So I've made that distinction there because we can appreciate when the Christ went to the cross, everybody fled. A true disciple, somebody whose heart had already been converted, would have certainly been sympathetic and remained there. And we see that, I think, uh, some of the women remained there, but the disciples all, all fled. They were not there. Um, now, this affirms, of course, what we read about in Luke chapter 16, that uh, where the Lord said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So what they witness there is insufficient to persuade the heart. That's not how people are persuaded. Again, they're persuaded by the Holy Ghost. Nevertheless, as we see everywhere in Scripture, there's always the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God will hold everyone responsible for rejecting the gospel, for rejecting what truth the Lord set right in front of their eyes when he called Lazarus forth from the grave, particularly these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests as we move forward here. So, however, in the context of teaching division, if we just look at it somewhat superficially, we can appreciate, well, that some believed, and yet some of them, some of the people are deaf, and they're blind, even though they saw these wonderful things, and they heard the Lord speak. And again, they will be responsible for that. And we can appreciate here that they, in spite of all everything that the Lord has done, they remain antagonistic towards Christ, and they remain antagonistic towards God. If we look at verse 47 and lump a bunch of them together there, we can appreciate how these men are. Then gathered having received word from what happened there, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. They have acknowledged that he's doing miracles. What are we going to do about this? For goodness sakes, he's raising somebody from the dead. What are we going to do about this? Oh, I know. Let's kill him. Let's kill Christ and let's kill Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Verse 10 of chapter 12 says that, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. I mean, we've got to do, do something about here because we are very concerned about our position, uh, not really about our nation, but they're concerned about their position, they're concerned about uh, being leaders of the uh, uh, nation of Israel, and they're concerned about losing that prestige, that authority, uh, their position in front of the people. That's what they're worried about. Pride is the sin that began all of the problems we have in the world today. It comes right out of Genesis chapter Three, We see that is the problem with Satan also. Isaiah chapter um, 14. If I pick it up in verse 12, I'll read a few verses there. And if you want to count all of the I wills in that section, you'll count five I wills. 
Satan, uh, this is, has to do with Satan. The Lord sang, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend up to the heavens of the clouds. I will be like the most high. God says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So these men are concerned about their power, and that is something that is common to men. They're concerned about their power, their prestige, and these are positions that men seek after for those reasons, and so that they can control and manipulate people. And we are seeing a great deal of that in our day today. God warns the church in Acts chapter 20, verse 30. He warns them. He says that there men shall come among you seeking disciples after themselves. People are going to come into the church, and rather than preaching Christ, they're going to preach themselves so that men will look to them and men will follow them. So this, this happens across the board here. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, the Lord sets before us a simple principle. He says that he that loves his life will lose it. These men love their life, and you can be sure they're going to lose it. In Matthew 16, the Lord says, Then said Jesus unto his disciple, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. That means in the flesh all the prominence and prestige and all the worldly things. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is, it, for what is a man profited... If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You can give nothing in exchange for your soul. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Um, that word reward has positive and negative connotations. So keep that in view here. These men will be rewarded. They'll receive the reward of iniquity for what they have done. So we see in verse 47 here that they take counsel. He's doing many miracles. He's raised a man from the dead. There is no excuse here. What we see taking place there is the same thing that takes place today, that which is written in Psalm 2 that we read about. They take counsel. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And be sure of this. It's happening today. Any... Um, any antagonism, any persecution against a Christian is against Christ himself. The Lord sets that principle before us in Matthew chapter 25. And this comes out of the Old Testament too and the New Testament. In Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46, the Lord is talking about that great day of judgment when all of the nations are set before him, sheep on the right, goats on the left. Then he said, then he shall say also unto them on the left hand, that's where the goats are, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? 
Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Um, Let me share with you what he's saying here. He's not talking about the church needs to get into fleshy ministries. The church is not God's... um, Oh, I can't think of the language I want to use. It's not God's global welfare system. We're supposed to preach the gospel, and preaching the gospel is bringing meat and bringing drink to people. It's uh, visiting the fatherless. They don't have a heavenly father. It's visiting widows because they're not married to Christ. They're in prison, the prison of Satan, when we've talked about some of this stuff in the past. But he's talking about going forth and preaching the gospel. But in like manner, we see in Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, Speaking about when the Israelites were preparing to come into the promised land, they needed to pass by the Ammonites and the Moabites. And in Deuteronomy 23, 4, it says, Because they, meaning the Ammonite and the Moabite, met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethorah of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Therefore, it's going to go on to say that they are cut off from the congregation of Israel. They are excluded. In other words, their goats that are on the left will be cast into the lake of of fire. What they did not to the Israelites, what they did not to his children, they did it not unto God. They were God's children. Now in Acts chapter 9, we hear about the same thing in terms of um, Saul of Tarsus persecuting Christians. In uh, verses 3 through 5 of Acts chapter 9, he says, And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, Paul, you're um, persecuting Christians. To persecute a Christian is to persecute Jesus. I am Jesus. He says it right here. Here we have Jesus in the Gospel of John. They are conspiring to murder him. Same thing is true if you go after Christians. It's just like going after Christ himself. And let us be clear here. It's almost as though they had put a bounty on his head. Everybody knew about what he had done. As a matter of fact, you recall, they did in fact pay Judas, that he would turn Christ over to him, that, they would, that Judas would identify him. Down in verse 56, the people are asking the question. They're looking for Jesus. Why are they looking for him? To what end? Will he not come up to the feast? Verse 57 says that the Pharisees, the chief priests, had given a commandment that if any man knew where he, Jesus, was, he should show it that they might take him. So it was the hostility towards Christ was quite open, and people knew about it. So they're looking for him. To what end? The scripture doesn't say, but it says that the commandment was given there. So we can think about it as a bounty being on his head. Now, when we get, again, verses 48 through 52 there, this is a manifestation of absolute and utter ignorance as to the gospel. The high priest Caiaphas has no idea what he has just says, I love the way he starts it. You know nothing at all. Really? Now consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now we should appreciate this, that the Holy Ghost is going to tell us what it means, the truth here. And this spake he, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, 
but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. He has no idea what he said here. He's concerned that the Romans will take their place and their nation from them. So he thinks that if they kill Jesus, that won't happen. The exact opposite is going to take place. The uh, Romans are absolutely going to destroy them, burn the um, temple and the city of Jerusalem, and the casualties were absolutely horrific. They don't appreciate that God had been protecting them up until that point in their history. Even though they'd been covered, they had had their issues in the past, but it's always been uh, within the context of a warning so that they would appreciate that when this day came, they would not reject him. Back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 23 and 24, the Lord kind of sets some of this before them so that they would appreciate that his providence would be necessary to protect them as a nation. Recall that three times a year, all the men were supposed to go up to Jerusalem. Your borders are undefended. All your men of war, where are they? They're all in Jerusalem. So in Exodus 34, he says, Thrice in the year shall all your men, children, shall all your men, children, appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice a year. In other words, we're going to have these three festivals. All the men got to come, and nobody's going to want to invade you at that time. In Joshua 23, he warns them. And people that speak of the restoration of national Israel talk about all of the wonderful promises that God made to them. They don't like to talk about the backside of the promises, which are also promises. So in Joshua 23, 14 through 16, he says, And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Joshua speaking of himself. And ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. Not one promise ever failed, even though they never kept the covenant. We've talked about that. They were idolaters in Egypt, they were idolaters in the wilderness, and they were idolaters once they came into the land. But nevertheless, not one good promise of the Lord ever failed concerning them. Verse 15. Um, pick it up. I broke myself in the middle here. Uh, one good thing hath failed of all the things the Lord God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Verse 15. Therefore, therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. When ye have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given you. So we need to appreciate that it is in 70 AD, during the Passover, he brings the Romans in when all the men of war are in the city, and he destroys them. And right here, they have an opportunity to heed the warnings of the Lord, to believe on the miracle that the Lord hath done, to believe what Christ is saying, and they don't do it. They rather choose to destroy him. So he does tell us a gospel truth here, but he doesn't understand the nation that is in view here. He's thinking of national Israel, and the Holy Ghost is saying, well, no, that's not what is in view here. What's in view here is the nation of believers, the remnant of national Israel, and they will be gathered together with the Gentiles 
into Christ. He says that in verse 52. For not for that nation only, meaning the nation of believers, the remnant in Israel, but that also he should gather together in one, that would be in Christ, the children of God that were scattered abroad. So God's going to scatter, going to gather rather all of his children, whether they're Jew or Gentile, from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. He's going to gather them all into Christ. Now, into one, into Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and through 7 tell us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Love is a synonym for Christ. Remember, God is love. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Christ is the beloved. You're accepted in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. If you flip over to Ephesians 2, 6, again, about gathering us together in one, and hath raised us up together. Remember I shared with you that when Christ was raised from the dead, the entire church was raised up with him. Hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the admonition I had spoke of earlier about let us be swift to hear and slow to speak, those boys should have been thinking about what Caiaphas had said. They should have been listening to what he has said here. Um, I have shared with people in the past, whether it be a dumb ass speaking to me, and that comes language is not my own, it comes from 2 Peter 2.16. He's speaking about the ass upon which Balaam was writing when he was going to go curse Israel. In 2 Peter 2.16 it says, But he was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophets. So I don't care if my, my well, I've got to be careful. I don't care if it's a dumbass speaking to me or whether it be someone like Caiaphas. You need to listen because God might be speaking to you through them to teach you something. So we want to pay attention here. We know that what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good to save much people alive here. The wheels are in motion here that's going to lead us to the cross. And the Lord sets that before us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, Him, meaning Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God had laid all this out, how that the um, cross was necessary for our salvation, so it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that, that, that this took place. Ye have taken... And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So just as men participate in the sharing of God's grace and mercies, he's got wicked hands participating in the crucifixion of Christ because that was necessary for the salvation of God's children. That is being uh, spoken of here. So Caiaphas will wickedly do that which is necessary to secure the salvation of God's people by which much people shall be saved alive. So as we read this, let us appreciate the Holy Ghost speaking to us about what people have done that God have ordained unto our good and our salvation. To which I will say, Amen.